0: And it's time for the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. Today on the show, i got algorithms who could ask for anything more. Recently, I was talking to the psychologist Paul Bloom about people's response to art and the way our ideas and preconceptions about the artist seem to matter just as much as the work itself. And uh, in the course of conversation, I asked Paul this. Now, how would you feel if you were listening to a beautiful piece of music and you found out that it was created by a computer? I would probably like it less. Mm. I, 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 I don't know, and I'm a cynical enough psychologist to say one would need to see. Um, but I would probably like it less. Such a double standard. But I suspect most of us have the same bias. And to make my point, I'd like to play some music here. First, a piece by Bach. Nobody does counterpoint quite like Bach, right? But what if I was to tell you that this was not composed by Bach, but by a machine emulating Bach's style? The whole tune feels different now, huh? And that is the case. This graceful little composition for keyboard was written by a computer program. The computer program was itself written by David Cope. He's a composer and professor emeritus of music at UC Santa Cruz, who's spent the last 30 years creating software that creates musical works. And by works, I don't mean little samples or cut-and-paste jobs, but complex compositions so convincing they fooled real music experts into thinking they were actually made by historic composers, like Bach or Mozart or Beethoven. The reactions on the part of classical music lovers have been mixed, to say the least. In fact, Cope's computer-generated tunes have been a kind of Rorschach test for listeners. Some have applauded them, but there's also been a lot of outrage. He's even been accused of desecrating music and endangering our very humanity. A lot of people are just plain confused. For instance, David Cope told me about this concert a couple of years ago, where works by several composers were performed, including one named Emily Howell. And the performers neglected to tell the audience that Emily Howell is one of Cope's computer programs.
1: And one particular person who was there was somebody I knew who was musically quite able He particularly was just ebullient, just, just alive with love of this music.
0: Now fast forward to a few months later, when David Cope gave a lecture describing the Emily Howell program, and then after the lecture, the same piece of music was performed. And this time, it was clear that the composer was a computer.
1: And afterwards, this very same individual came up, having not put the two together, obviously, and said to me, you know, I could tell from the beginning that that music just had no human human uh, source, that there was something, something that just didn't ring true, that the computer just gave itself away immediately.
0: Now, I want to point out that David Cope didn't set out to trick people. He just wanted to make good compositions and to explore the nature of musical creativity. He was asking questions like, what is it that composers actually do? Can computers do the same thing? And if they can, what does that tell us about human acts of creation? Are we machines too, cranking out music by the numbers? Or are our works somehow more inspired because we made them? Well, today I'll talk to David Cope about those and other questions, about his long-running musical experiments, and why they make so many people uncomfortable. And uh, before we go to the interview, let's uh, listen to one more piece of David Cope's computer composed music, a mazurka after Chopin. Like the previous Bach style piece, This one is performed by David Cope's wife, the pianist Mary Jane Cope. David, I've been listening to uh, these compositions on a couple of your CDs and getting kind of fond of, of some of them, um, mm-hmm. like this um, Chopin-esque Mazurka here. But I don't know who to compliment on this composition.
1: Well, I don't. I don't think you need to compliment anybody. I think you're complimenting it, whoever it is, by just liking it. That's the most important thing. Oh,
0: really? Well, I have this strong urge to say, you did a great job with this, Dave. Or your computer program did a nice job with this or Chopin himself did a nice job with this and this imitation is the highest form of flattery.
1: Right, well I think it's a combination of, of things. I mean I don't, I don't gift my computer with anything more than the ability to add and subtract. <laughs> That's all computers really basically do. Uh, the rest is entirely uh, human programmed, uh, human, human performed, uh, human listened to. Listen to. Mm. The primary way that the program who, there I go again, who composed <laughs> this particular piece you're referring to, worked on a principle of having a database of, of Chopin Mazurkas. So the question then becomes, is it Chopin you think? Probably not. Is it the computer you think? Probably not. Is it me you think? Well, I'm the person who ultimately decided which one of the many thousands that were produced uh, was going to be recorded. mm mm-hmm. Do you think my wife, who's performer in that particular case, mm. uh, performers are very involved with this? All I can tell you is that for the published versions of those pieces, those those Chopin-esque pieces, uh, I put on them by David Cope with experiments in musical intelligence. It begs the question still, uh, because I've not answered the question. But I, I, you know, ultimately I have to take responsibility for the pieces.
0: Why don't you fill us in? On how this and and similar pieces were put together, by this program you created way back in the 90s, yeah? Uh, Experiments in Musical Intelligence? Way back in the
1: early 80s. In fact, 1980.
0: The CD is from the 90s, but uh, it collects works that had been created over a long haul.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Um, You call it EMI, which stands for uh, Experiments in Musical Intelligence. Correct. Tell us what EMI is doing to create a piece that sounds so much like Chopin.
1: Well, in the short... The the program operates by having a database uh, which is filled with uh, models of music by that particular composer, in this case Chopin Mazurka's. Very simply, the program analyzes the music in the database for everything from, you know, how things go together in terms of voice leading from one measure to the next or one beat to the next to how long is a phrase, what meter is it in, what form does it have, Uh, And then when it's through with that analysis, it attempts to create a new piece uh, in the same style as the music in the database without actually duplicating any one of the pieces in the database. Mm. Mm. In a sense, it's more of an analytical engine that to prove that it's analyzed the music correctly produces uh, some more music that we can now say, well, that must have been a pretty good analysis because it does sound like Chopin.
0: Okay, so you feed in a lot of actual music by the composer in question.
1: Uh, yes, yeah, I feed it in very carefully. Uh,
0: <laughs> but the computer program uh, analyzes it, breaks it down, figures out the kinds of components, the kinds of transitions, um, other structural elements, and then creates its own. Yes, you know, imitation of that composer's work. What was your reaction when it first spit out? a composition that really sounded like, say, Bach or Mozart or Chopin or Beethoven?
1: I was thrilled. I mean, I I, I had worked on this by that time for maybe two years, so it was sort of a vindication that um, the principles I was using were something that uh, was correct enough that it produced something that I felt was not only Chopin-esque, but others when I didn't tell them and played it for them on the piano myself I actually thought it was Chopin.
0: <laughs> so I'm not the only one who thinks so. <laughs> Did you uh, throw your arms up and run around your laboratory screaming, it's alive, it's alive?
1: Not those exact words, but I certainly <laughs> came close to that. It was a, really a moment of triumph for me. Uh, I don't know what, but I mean, because I was really a composer still. And so this whole notion of creating these, uh, these strange-esque pieces, as you referred to them in a way, was kind of new to me at the time. In fact, new to anybody at the time, and it was uh, also a little bit scary.
0: Yeah, we'll talk about that in, in just a moment. Here's another piece that, to my um, less-than-expert ear, is sort of a dead ringer stylistically. This is a um, a sonata after Beethoven, and reminiscent of the Moonlight Sonata, Sonata mm-hmm. Number 14 for piano. Right. That, again, is played by your wife, Mary Jane Cope? Yes. And um, what strikes me is, after hearing your description of how it was composed, I would have thought, oh, a computer could paste together pre-existing segments of music. Maybe it could vary a few notes here and there, but how could it get the feeling? How could it get the emotional arc of that piece from beginning to end? How could it get the romanticism of Beethoven?
1: How does it do that? Well. Let me make a statement about uh, about your role as listener. I think uh, listeners of the world pay themselves poor respect when they're stating that they think that this romanticism belongs entirely in the music. Um, music doesn't do everything to us. We do a lot of it ourselves. And the music, which after all, in Beethoven's terms, was nothing but a bunch of black dots and black lines on a white sheet mm-hmm. of paper, uh, requires that a performer realize that in the performing style of Beethoven's time or at least in a believable performing style and then we have to listen to it with our imaginings of oh my goodness how Beethoven felt that day when he wrote it what he thinks he was translating to us in some uh some musical way you know the important thing is i believe is that there's there's three components one is the composer one is the performer and one is the listener and I think they, at different times, are in relatively interesting proximity to one another. But I do think that we we, we tend to raise the composer to um, to heights and lower ourselves to the depths um, uh, in in mistaken ways. Mm.
0: We certainly think of Beethoven, Mozart, and these other giants of composition as as having unique gifts. I mean, nobody has composed. Beethoven pieces like Beethoven. No one's composed Mozart pieces like Mozart. Very, very rare creations. At least that's how we think of them. What does it say about that creative gift that this computer program, and I know some people would argue, well, this is, this is second-rate Beethoven. It sounds like Beethoven, but it's not got the special qualities. But what does it say about the, that, that creative gift um, that a computer is able to get this close?
1: Well, let let me just separate things out again. I think it's really important for us when we think about someone like Beethoven. And I'll just use myself as an example here. Before I begin to listen, I imagine somebody who later in life became deaf. I I remember seeing his great uh, collection of ear mechanisms for him to hear later in life, some of them quite large. Uh, And one of them actually attached to the piano, and and he heard through his teeth when he was completely deaf. I I can't help but imagine that. And then all the little sculptured, little plastic things we see in drugstores and so forth of the (laughs) wild-haired Beethoven, and we know about his his nephew and his struggle in life. There's a lot of unmusical, non-musical, let's put it that way, kinds of information that we bring to the table when we hear a piece by Beethoven. And you can't ignore that information. And so when the music starts to play, we invest in it, a whole lot of, of uh, surrounding information that impregnates our ability to hear it. And so we come away from it in a very different way than we would have had we been uh, just born and we could listen to it as purely uh, as the notes were written on the page. And Beethoven can't be unwrapped like that. Hmm. It's the whole package. Hmm. It, it
0: also suggests that the the computer has captured something that we humans recognize as Beethoven's essential style. Some things in those elements that the uh, computer program has extracted in its analysis really do seem to embody what it what it means to be a Beethoven composition. I think it has. Yeah. And and what is that? Is it just a is it just an assemblage of mannerisms? Is it just a, a, t- a bunch of It's partly that, there's tendencies? no question
1: about it. Yeah. Uh huh. It's what I call signatures, these mm-hmm. little uh things that I mean, all composers do this. I mean, the, or writers or visual artists, you you find something that you like, that you've done, that you think is original, and you uh, you do it again and again and again. I mean, why not? I mean, if we find a food we like, do you think you're going to just simply say, "I'm not going to eat it again"? So, in part, I think it does have to do with these signatures or these little, if you want to call them and make it negative, cliches, mm. uh, that are, you know, at certain times necessary to make a composition sound like Beethoven. On the other hand, an awful lot of Beethoven sounds like Mozart, and an awful lot of Mozart sounds like Haydn, and an awful lot of Haydn sounds like and on and on. Haydn I like C P E Bach. C P E Bach like Papa Bach. And that's what makes traditions. That's what makes 150 years of classical music, seventy five years of, of romantic music, and so forth, as we have these tens Now within that there are these little idiosyncrasies that each one of these composers has. We tend to ascribe Beethoven's style. You know, as bifurcated between this logical idea of these little uh concepts of of signatures and cliches and this romanticized view of it somehow coming from his deafness and his pain, his angst, it's fervor, his struggle with romance in his life and uh who was that lady after all, and <laughs> everything that is involved with this. And between the two of those we've packaged him into this superhuman mm. of the past. Mm. I consider Beethoven, since we've centered on him, to be one of the most talentless people I've ever come in contact with through my ears. And that is because I've read through, played through almost all of his sketchbooks and realized his initial ideas are beyond the pale. They're so bad. <laughs> but that he was able, he was—he had a great craftsmanship. He was able to, to, to listen to his own extraordinarily poor output and recognize it for what it was, and then keep on varying things until he got it right. And then he could recognize when something was good. You take da da de, da, da 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 da. He worked at that for months to get that one little theme. And he goes he, all kinds of variants on it, most of which are just horrific. And then he finally hit on it. So that his magic was not in his talent, which I'm sure I would I'm gonna get criticized heavily for making that statement, but I don't care. I'm criticized heavily anyway. <laughs> But it is my pure belief he didn't have the the native talent that a lot of composers have. He was essentially someone who had this great gift for understanding what not only himself would like, but others would like as well when he heard it. Now, Mozart was exactly the reverse. Okay, But I don't think Mozart had any talent either. Okay, if we we want to get down to it.
0: Mozart's the reverse in the sense that he could spit out uh, music you know, without
1: even taking a second thought about it, and he great. still get it right and still get it beautiful. Yeah, but he was also a a a, a, a you know a, a complete thief. I, I can think of hardly any pieces of his that that Haydn didn't do before, or Clementi, the famous, which from the Magic Flute of Mozart is taken verbatim. Same key from, a, from a, uh, a 10-year-old, at that point, uh, piano sonata by Clementi. We know Mozart was in the audience because Clementi was so thrilled that Mozart had shown up that day.
0: Well, well let me just, um, for the moment, adopt your iconoclasm and say, okay, so these guys didn't have any talent, but they had really good taste, right? They had They'd, really good taste. They knew what to steal, and they knew how to put it together, and they knew what to throw out and what to keep. Yeah. So maybe that's talent. Maybe that's the gift we're talking about. Maybe it is about. talent. If that is yeah. what people mean by talent, yeah.
1: then I would I would agree they have talent. Mm. But that isn't what I usually consider myself to be talent. Mm. As a result, that's why I use the word in that way. Mm.
0: Well, how about this one? Uh, this is another composition by Emmy, Experiments in Musical Intelligence, this computer program you developed, with a with a composer very close to your heart. So this is a piece um, performed by Ensemble Nova, where Emmy was actually analyzing and then recombining and recreating work after your own style. Yes. After your own works. Yes. Okay. First of all, it was very nice of you to be fair and subject yourself to this treatment after taking the the greats of composition and doing it to them. But what was it like when you heard this result? Did it did it feel like yours? Did it feel like it got you?
1: I I didn't hear it first, when it it was finished, when the program actually produced uh, uh, the MIDI file and then I made a score out of the the output from the program. I didn't really have the tactile sense that you get from a live performance and so I scheduled it for a uh, performance with the uh, University Orchestra here, the quarter that I was conducting the orchestra. And so the very first time I walked out on stage for the rehearsal, was the very first time I heard the piece, and it was a, a nerve-wracking experience, let me tell you, because I had no clue as to whether this was a bomb or or something that was going to be very exciting. And uh, it was a little bit of both. Um, I recognized uh, what the program often does, which is take small features of a composer's style, and and. Uh, blow them up or or expand them in ways that, you know, to me didn't seem natural. So this particular work, Horizons, has this, you know, this sort of non-melodic, continuous chordal development idea, building up to a climax, which is something I did and have done, but didn't think I had done it to that extent. And this this became the whole piece for Horizons. But as I conducted it in rehearsal over the course of the quarter that I was conducting it, I felt ultimately quite satisfied with it. And since then, it's been recorded and I've heard it a number of times and I actually listen to it myself occasionally. And I think it's been, it's fine. I, I consider it one of my pieces. This is, uh, and have no problem with it whatsoever.
0: So your piece by way of, of sort of a prosthetic extension of your own brain.
1: Yeah. And I think this is a really important point. And, th- and that is that, uh, again, the computer is a tool. It's there to do things more accurately and quicker than I could ever possibly do them in my lifetime. It's allowing me to do things that I wouldn't otherwise even think of doing because of that speed and accuracy. But beyond that, it's it's uh, if I've programmed it correctly. And here again, I had the luxury of being the programmer of the program as well as the composer of the music in the database, which not many people, well, nobody else could have with my software at least, that same feeling. And therefore, I didn't have this bifurcation of my personality into uh, into thinking that this was machine composed. It It wasn't, it was composed by me by way of this uh, prosthetic, as you referred to it. Uh, and that was great. I mean, I, I, I thought that was just uh, so much the better. Mm. I've been in love with algorithms all my life. You've got to understand that. I, I'm, I'm, you know, I can trace my first algorithmic composition back to the mid-50s. My computer work with this didn't start until the mid-70s, 20 years later. Uh, paper algorithms ex- have existed for ever since we've had pencil and paper. So they've existed uh, throughout time. From the first time anybody wrote something down, in a sense, they were writing down an algorithm. Hmm.
0: So you mean you had already applied sort of formulaic uh, transformations uh, to compositions in the past, just using good old-fashioned pencil and paper? Yes, I have. Okay. So in a sense, all computers do is speed that up.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Um, and and we- it's my premise, by the way, that I think all composers are algorithmic composers, that we all have algorithms within us. I and mean, it's just not just fugues and canons and these things that we look on objectively Uh, But I think subconsciously that thing we do call inspiration is an algorithm.
0: By the way, I just want to quickly explain uh, something you said earlier, that what the computer program produces initially is a synthesized version, a MIDI version. And then later, if it's one that you really like, real human musicians get to play it, as in in the the version we've been hearing by Ensemble Nova. And you're listening to The 7th Avenue Project on Central Coast Public Radio, KUSP. I'm Robert Polly, and I'm talking to the composer and computer programmer David Cope. For the last three decades, he's been writing software that creates pieces of music, some in the style of actual historical composers, others original modern works. Cope's belief is that all composition follows computational rules or algorithms, challenging all sorts of cherished notions about human creativity and uniqueness. And we'll get back to that interview in just a moment. Now back to today's interview with the composer, David Cope. Um, Now we get to the thing that you mentioned earlier, your mixed elation when you first heard the results of Emmy, and you said, a little scary. Is there something scary about the realization that you've come to that all composition is algorithmic, that we are (laughs) like machines, or we are machines, applying formula?
1: No, uh, um uh, that was something that was obvious to me long before, you know, experiments in musical intelligence uh, produced that first piece in a recognizable style. I was scared of the power that I, th- I suddenly felt that I, I had. Not that, not that I felt that I had much power, but I felt I had more power than I thought I had. Let's mm. put it that way. And it was, uh, that was what made it scary. It, w- it wasn't that the computer did it, which doesn't bother me. In the slightest, nor do I actually believe it except for that speed and accuracy line. But that this could be done Mm. in a way that would be convincing. And I I had to play it for my wife then and my kids and then my colleagues uh, before I believed it because I thought maybe I was just uh, so invested in my programming in terms of time and energy that I had decided mentally that I was going to like it no matter what. Mm. But they uh, they agreed with me that it's they seemed to think it was very good. And then as I went forward and played the game a few times until I stopped, the game being, you know, here's three pieces, mm-hmm. one of which is by a computer, one of which, uh, at least one of which, is by uh, the the actual composer. You think it is now, which is which, and you play it for musicologists, and they can't tell the difference. It's pretty uh, <laughs> it, it's pretty scary when the fact is that that, that had never, to my knowledge, happened before in terms of this kind of work.
0: So not scary in the sense that a lot of people might guess, and I, I had my, myself guessed, that you're Dr. Frankenstein, that you've created a kind of, of monster, but just scary in a good way that, wow, this really works. Yeah,
1: yeah, exactly.
0: But some people were not so thrilled.
1: Right. No, they, I got lots of criticism. There's no question about that.
0: <laughs> What's the most extreme reaction you've gotten from these pieces?
1: That would have been in Germany in 1989, February, when one musicologist... Uh, you know, stuck his finger in my nose. I think you know this, uh, probably. Uh, it's a it's a story I've often told and uh, spoke in German but and said that music, music is tot, is, is his statement. You know, that he felt that I just uh, killed music somehow. Or this, mm. I just put the first nail in the coffin of music, mm. as he perceived it, as a purely human uh, endeavor. Mm. Uh, I felt nothing of the sort. I thought he was completely wrong, but... Um, uh, he wasn't going to let me get a word in edgewise, so I let him talk because I'm, <laughs> I'm not a particularly uh, angry guy about things. And so I let him have his way. And frankly, at that particular conference, a member of the audience uh, stood up for me and argued uh, pretty well in my behalf. What's the argument they made? Well, first of all, they said on flair play. I mean, that, that was really ridiculous. That, that was unforgivable as far as he was concerned. Uh, But the other was, again, like I've said so many times, it's just a computer, and the computer is just nothing but a tool. It's a a, a very highly sophisticated shovel. Mm. When you drive down the street seeing someone dig a hole, you don't say, hey, shovel, what a great (laughs) job you're doing. Uh, you, You might realize that, in fact, the shovel would be nothing without the human being who's running it. And, ah, but, uh,
0: okay, so that's an uncontroversial claim, but it seems to me that you're saying something else in this conversation we're having, which is that computer, just a shovel, just a tool, but human beings, also just a shovel.
1: <laughs> yeah, more sophisticated shovels.
0: <laughs> exactly, and so that's what must get people upset, I think. Oh,
1: oh yeah, I, I seem to get them more upset when I bring up the philosophical viewpoints that I have, which are um, something I believe profoundly in and usually try to keep out of conversations uh, when I'm in situations like parties and so forth, because I want people to have a good time and not have to get involved with this. But when I start telling them about human algorithms, they get pretty mm. upset. But I, I believe the whole universe is nothing but an algorithm. Mm. Um,
0: You're not all that different, then, from a lot of scientists these days.
1: Oh, yeah. You know. Or a lot of philosophers throughout mm. history. Mm. I'm certainly not the one, first one to say that by any means.
0: You called Emmy uh, experiments in musical intelligence. What What is your definition of intelligence, then? Do you, do you have one?
1: Well... If you look in the dictionary, as I'm, as I'm often telling my students, you'll find that intelligence is defined as the ability to reason, and if you look up reason, you'll find it is. it says the capacity for intelligence. Uh, so <laughs> Webster's is not very clear on the definition either. It's a snake eating its tail. I have uh, similar problems. I generally uh, suggest that, like like the dictionary, uh, Webster's, I, I tend to think that Part of it is the ability to reason, to uh, infer information from other information. You know, for example, I mean, I I, I was just reading yesterday uh, a book on AI and in which the author pointed out that, that a young child, as they're growing up, let's say a very, very young child, like my new grandchild named Tess, seeing a bottle with milk in it uh, can very quickly recognize the bottle, even though it's changed shape by virtue of it being shifted in our sight lines. And it can even recognize it coming head on with a nipple straight forward or bottom on. And that's an amazing thing when you think about it. The ability of the mind to see a bottle in one position and get satisfaction, then in a slightly different position. And of course, there are zillions of possible positions and be able to say pretty quickly to generalize that whole thing. Into anything that looks like that from whatever direction is possible, I'll recognize it as a, as a bottle. So tomorrow when you bring it to me, it won't be in any position I've ever seen before, but it's still my bottle. Mm-hmm. That ability to reason, to infer that that bottle has a certain bottleness to it that we can recognize is extraordinary. So I'm not, you know, I believe intelligence is, an ex- is, is a wonderful capacity and we should be delighted that we have it. But it's still an algorithm.
0: And it doesn't just belong to us, I think you're saying. No, it does not. Machines can have it.
1: Um, Well, machines don't have it. They don't. They don't, okay. But I will feel that our intelligence is highly diminished if we can't figure out what it is and teach a computer Mm. how to do
0: it. Mm -hmm. And we won't have lost anything in the bargain? No. So what is this anxiety that a lot of us have about losing out to machines or to an idea of ourselves as just brute calculators, you know. Why are we so afraid of that, do you think?
1: Well, I mean, I think that each one of us with our own self-consciousness, our ability to be able to think that we're individuals and so forth, think we're somehow much more than that. We've always thought that. We've always thought there were external gods that that gave us this superior uh, intellect and the heart and the soul and all these things. And um, while I I do believe there's a lot we don't know, which we might want to ascribe to as God or soul, at the same time, this thing that's trying to find those things out is is an algorithm. And I, I think that people underestimate the value and sophistication that algorithms are capable of. Algorithms can be extraordinarily significant things. And I'm demonstrating that now, and you are, and everybody who's listening is demonstrating that, uh, merely because the the, the language we're using is such a sophisticated device. But I think that any time anybody who has a romanticized view of things thinks of themselves, thinks of other people in the world, to be reduced to a single word is a reduction they're not willing to submit Mm. to.
0: I, I was just thinking, you know, Mark Twain said man is the only uh, animal who blushes or has reason to. I would add we're the only ones who worry about our status yeah. as as a species. We do. And I don't know why, but I think that's part of the, the anguished uh, reactions that, that your work gets sometimes.
1: Uh, I would tend to agree with that. I also tend—we're we're also tend to believe that we're also very much influenced by science fiction movies from the 50s, 60s, 70s, yes, and their portrayal of uh, these robots or these artificially intelligent beings becoming somehow on their own superior to us, mm. and then running us and turning us into, you know, into slaves.
0: Oh, there's a lot of talk about that now. Absolutely, yeah, more than and, ever.
1: Yeah, and that, that builds up a fear in people, even though there's no reason to be fearful. We're so far away. I'm not sure that we're not even further away from AI than we were when the term was invented.
0: I look at you know the, the spectacular gains in computing power, and yet I don't see computers. I don't see them as any more menacing or any more autonomous, uh, capable of taking over our lives than than I used to. I don't either. Yeah.
1: I do, I do notice that – and this is important, I think, for me at least, if not for the audience, that I had, um, I had prostate cancer about three years ago. And the machines can do those, the, these uh, placing of uh, very small uh, radioactive uh, little bodies inside mm-hmm. your body to mm-hmm. kill the cancer. And I was very thankful for the computer's <laughs> ability to be able to do that. All that saved my life there was a series of algorithms, <laughs> sheer and simple. And, uh, and I loved it.
0: And human ingenuity in and using human those, ingenuity. those algorithms. Yeah. Now, um, we've been talking about your compositions from, from quite a while ago, uh, made by this program you called Emmy Experiments in Musical Intelligence. At some point, you moved on. You got rid of Emmy and you created a new program.
1: Right, I didn't actually get rid of Emmy. I got. Oh, rid of, I
0: read that you killed her.
1: Uh, well, that, that's a little over <laughs> overdrawn. Uh, Emmy, Emmy herself, quote unquote, <laughs> is still alive and well. It's the databases that I destroyed, and the databases were extremely important to the program. It took me, in some cases, years to create. So, um, by so doing, they uh, put an end to my. Uh, uh, you know, creation of music in historical styles and allowed me to investigate creation of new musical styles, which is what I'd more or less been always interested in. So in 2003, I put her to rest, uh, though she still occasionally writes music in my style because I didn't destroy those databases. Uh-huh. And I also have a a uh, three or four small databases that I use for demonstration of her live so we can, you know, In in presentations, I'll often bring her out and and create a a little Mozart piece or a Joplin piece or a a Bach chorale or a small Chopin mazurka uh, just so people can hear a a world premiere of a new small work. But otherwise, she's uh, mothballed in a manner in which I will not be seduced again into going back to that. And I say it that way because I was seduced. I had, I had, I had tried to quit doing historical replications in the late 90s. And over and over, the, like trying to quit smoking, somebody would come up and say, you know, well, what if you did this database with that database? Or what if, you know, Schubert's ninth uh, could be whatever and Mahler's 10th and so forth? <laughs> and, you know, I was seduced back and back into it a number of times. And finally, by destroying every copy of every database I had, uh, I was able to put her out of commission in terms of that, uh, except for COPE databases. I got it. And so I still do compositions in COPE occasionally with COPE style. So
0: um, RIP, at least to some extent, Emmy, and enter uh, the latest program, which is called Emily Howell? Called Emily Howell, correct. F- and that name comes from?
1: Well, Emily is a is a sort of derivative of Emmy, so that, that shows uh, a relationship there. And Howell is my father's first name, Uh, my middle name, uh, the majority of my background being Welsh, and therefore uh, it seemed appropriate because I wanted to honor him. He was a wonderful man. He's dead now, unfortunately, but uh, uh, honor him in some way. And now Emily Howell uh, works on a database, works on a different principle than experiments in musical intelligence, but it still works on what I call data-driven mentality. That is, it still works with a database. And in this case, the only data that I allow... Emily Howell to use, is the music that her quote-unquote mother, Emmy, created. So she has a 1,000 pieces at her disposal, and she uses – so she's a second-generation computer model composer, which is, I think, quite interesting.
0: I I didn't realize that she used only pieces created by Emmy. Yes. And yet the result, which I I think we should maybe start by just playing um, one of – here we go, anthropomorphizing, dangerously, one of her compositions. And this is a, a composition called From Darkness Light, um, and it alternates between preludes and fugues. So we're going to hear a bit from the third part, which is a prelude, and um, then I'm going to fade it and play a little bit of the fourth part, which is a fugue. Dave, tell us first of all um, how Emily Howe works, and, th- and then maybe you can describe a little bit of this
1: composition we're listening to. Okay, uh, but before I do that, let me let me give you a language approach that I think will make it very clear to you and your your audience uh, how the program works. Okay. Uh, because you can use language with this program as well as you can use music. Hmm. So let's say I start off by typing in these separate words. Uh, How are you today? With a question mark at the end. Each of those words goes into a kind of node in an empty chamber, otherwise empty chamber. And that's all the program knows is what's in there. And these words can be in any language. The program doesn't know anything about English, Esperanto, Spanish, Italian, Swahili. It doesn't matter. um, As long as you can put it in ASCII characters. And then I'll, I'll say, I'm doing fine, let's say. Well... The program will initially put out things such as uh, "fine," "you are," "yesterday," because all it has to do is work with those things. Mm-hmm. And the the entire waiting system, that is, the, this universally connected waitings, which are, you can imagine, there's lines between the the uh, all the objects that are in there, all the words that are in there. Is all random at mm-hmm, first. Mm-hmm. So I say, well, that's a bunch of baloney. So mm-hmm, I'll say mm-hmm, no, mm-hmm. and the way it's become slightly changed. Mm. And then I'll ask it another question like, uh, well, how are you doing today? And it'll probably say something like today, tomorrow, I, you, whatever. And I'll say no. And then I'll, uh, maybe I'll wait again and I'll say, how are you going today? And they'll come up with something a little less strange, surprisingly. I'll say no, until I finally get something that makes sense, surprising maybe, but at least it makes a little sense. And then I'll say yes my reasoning behind this approach was that that's exactly how I see little children working with language. They don't know, they're afraid first of all to say anything because they don't know if they've really heard it right or if they can express it in a way that you can understand. But eventually it's a lot of no's and yeses, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and they slowly learn that you know this is how you understand this and so maybe I better talk this way so you can understand. So carrot and stick, carrot and stick. Now if we translate that over to musical words, which may be either a beat of music, a measure of music, a note of music, mm-hmm. anything you wish, and put it in in the same way as you put in language. Mm-hmm. Now you might ask, how can you ask a musical question of something that doesn't even know what you're talking about? Well, at the in, at the instigation of this, I don't know what's a question. I mean, I have a feel for it. Uh, there are musical questions and answers in tonal music and most of Emmy's work is tonal music so it's, it's pretty easy to end up with a dominant at the end of my first question, let's say So what's a question, musically speaking? Well, let's, let's try one I'll, I'll try one mm, da, 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 dum. So I might put those five notes in ah. and you see that, that demands some kind of an answer that is not the end of a piece is uh-huh. it? and so I would hope that, that the, the, the answer would be ba, da, 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 dum. Mm-hmm. but it's not going to be it's going to be da 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 or something. I don't know. It's not going to have any idea what a question is. So I'll say no, 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 until pretty soon it comes out with something. Dee-da-da-da-da-dum. Okay. I wouldn't have expected that answer, but that's not too far off. So I'll say yes to that, which sort of helps ingrain that as a kind of a pattern because in, in, in this sort of uh, buffer zone, if you want to call it that. and And we keep on going. And so there's this training session that can go on for days while I try to convince her of, again, in quotes, her, uh, to understand my musical input enough that she can begin to produce something that I, that I tend to like. And so after a while, it becomes less and less in that matter of answers and questions. And more and more am I just saying, I kind of like that thing you just did. Please save that and let's build upon it.
0: Okay, so so this sounds to me like the computer is, or the program is just a foil, really. I mean, in a way, it's just spitting out combinations that you are tuning, you're modifying, modulating, again and again and again and again and again. You're really active in this process.
1: Yes, it is a an interactive process that ME was not. Mm-hmm. And I wanted this process because I believe the process of creating music is an interactive process. Mm. We imagine composers at work in solitary confinement mm-hmm. in their labs, mm-hmm. you know, secretly doing such and such. But in fact, most composers, let's take Chopin as an example, we're out playing music and getting applause for this and booze for that, reviews for that, and bad reviews for this. They're getting feedback all the time about their music. And they tend, no matter how, you know, they may wish to, to avoid having that input inform their compositions, we all know that they, they do. Oh,
0: and there's also just the huge library of phrases and melodies and so on that they've heard in their lifetime bubbling up in various combinations Absolutely. all the time. And all the time. you hear these in your head? You say, wow, I like that one, I don't like that one, and yeah. so on and so
1: forth. And when you're composing, you don't have a chance to think, well, did I, did I get that one from somebody? And who was it, and when did they sing that, or where did I hear that particular little phrase in music? Usually, too busy composing a piece to think of those things. So, in a way, it's it's um, it's not that different than than Emmy in the sense that, though Emmy created whole works rather than you know small phrases that become whole works, and was less was actually not less than interactive, it was non interactive. Uh, this interactive version of Emmy, if you want to consider it that. Was more interesting to me mm. because I could get involved in the process. Mm. But make no mistake about it, I didn't compose the output. I'm constantly surprised uh, because the changes of weights as a result of my saying yes or no are not are not powerful. They're very subtle. Mm. They're very small, subtle changes to the weightings. Mm-hmm. So it's like my cat, you know, I I uh, <laughs> when I my, my cat every evening comes to me at dinner time and wants me to to stroke it and brush it, Mm. and usually I do. Sometimes I don't, in which case the cat turns around and gives me the cold shoulder. But I love cats. Uh, But the one thing about cats, you if you're a cat owner, if you're a cat lover like I am, is you can control them up to a certain point. (laughs) Show me a cat on a leash. Well, Emily is not a cat on a leash. Emily is creating things, and I can only push her so far. Mm. I can only... I mean I'm getting something I like but I also know that when I finished a composition with her it's not something I would ever have composed. So it's or a reun- collaboration. It's a collaboration but I would say that it's a collaboration that takes place uh, though as you've already pointed out in slightly different ways in real life with real human beings. Mm-hmm. And I think it's using an algorithm that's fairly s- fairly s- similar to the one that we ourselves use.
0: So so let's go back to the piece. Now you just described the the, the method of um Of interaction with the computer program that resulted in this piece we're listening to, uh, From Darkness Light. Um, Let's go back to it for a second here and just listen to that fugue section we mentioned earlier, just uh, a little bit from the middle, where we can hear a couple of the voices going, the counterpoint in this fugue. Now, that piece, I would still say, is, is very traditional. It's not really a modernist composition, or am I wrong about that?
1: No, it's it's a, a little different kind of fugue than Bach would write. Mm-hmm. And in fact, mm-hmm. it would be a little different fugue than almost anybody would write, because <laughs> primarily it's, it's one big, long, huge introduction, and then there's no, there's no development and uh, coda at the end, so it's uh, a little lopsided. But you're right, in terms of its harmonic and melodic, um, you know, contours and consonants and dissonance and so forth. It's it's uh, pretty traditional. But this is opus one.
0: Opus one. Okay. So uh, let's play a, another piece from, from this album that features compositions by Emily Hall. And this is the third piece on the album. It's called Shadow Worlds. This is the fourth movement. that sounds to me like something we could all agree is very modern.
1: Mm -hmm. I think so. Although, you know, there are certainly more modern pieces than that Mm -hmm. in existence today. But, uh, yeah, I mean, she's slowly uh, developing uh, a style which I don't believe she's uh, certainly attained yet. But I'm working on two or three more albums in which I hope to produce or I hope she produces uh, some, you know, some musical output that will be different than anyone has ever heard
0: before. And uh, on this recording, who's performing?
1: Uh, on this last piece, uh, it's being performed by the computer, by the computer on a so. disc clavier.
0: This is a sort of high-tech player piano. Yes. Is some of the work that, that, that uh, Emily Howell has composed, or that you and Emily Howell together have composed, is so difficult that it can only be played on disc clavier, right? Yes. Yeah? Mm-hmm. It's too fast, it's too, too much fast, going on. Too many on. notes. Too many notes, yeah. Yeah. Now, there's been other modern composers who have composed for player piano and disc clavier. It's yes. Not, that's not in itself. Um, innovative, no. Well, I was going to say innovative. I was going to say that, that in itself isn't blasphemous at all. No, I don't think so. <laughs> it's only the computer part that people consider to be exactly. sacrilegious. Um, you know, we were talking earlier about you know the perception of your work, and I, I'm thinking that some people have gotten the impression or might get the impression that, oh, what a cold, heartless take on things, you know? We're all computers, it's all algorithmic. The whole universe is algorithmic.
1: Well, uh here's some examples of of algorithms at work. DNA, breathing, blinking, and heartbeats. Now tell me un- how unhuman that is.
0: <laughs> well, some would say oh, but that is the physical substrate, those are the mechanisms, but over and above these things hovers this thing called consciousness, maybe even a thing called a soul, you know? Um, You know, I'm being a classic dualist here, uh, Try to escape from the materialist reduction of human beings. But there are many people these days who uh, are materialists, a lot of scientists and philosophers and so on, and um, they don't seem depressed about it.
1: No, what's to be depressed about?
0: It takes this idea of intelligence and creativity uh, and other faculties that we like to consider human, and it doesn't eradicate them. It just says they're around us, they're in us, they're outside of us. They are woven into the, the structure of the universe. Natural selection is a kind of algorithm that gives rise to this amazing brain that does these things we consider human. So in a sense, it's like pantheism. It's 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 the, the the very structure of the universe is full of meaning and intelligence in that in that regard, yeah,
1: and in fact uh you know I would say that if if you were to ask me my definition of God, it would be the universe, everything mm. Mm. one great big wonderful algorithm
0: despite what you've just said, do you have a feeling of sort of creator's pride in all of this
1: well, let's just say I have a uh an algorithm. <laughs> Which produces <laughs> creator's pride.
0: <laughs> okay, I wasn't going to trick you into anything there. Um, you have an autobiography out. Uh, yes. It came out last year? Yes. It's called Tin Man. Yes. Why is it called that?
1: Oh, well, basically because in the 90s there were some friends of mine uh, around the world uh, through uh, email. I've never even met them, uh, who started a kind of uh, – chat list, if you will, and uh, because I at that particular time, I was getting quite a bit of negative uh, press uh, about my sort of uh, soulless, uh, anti-human whatever, like we've been discussing. If he only had a heart. If he only had a heart. <laughs> and so they started calling me Tin Man, uh, and they distinguish it from uh, Tin Man in uh, Wizard of Oz. Which was two words, Tin Man by Always calling me Tinman, the, the 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 one word. Uh, they they were combined, and uh, you know I actually uh, kind of liked that in a way um, because it's sort of it's sort of you know the man in search of a heart, and this was what the critics were all about. So I I re, you know received that moniker, and some people still refer to me that online within that group when they write to me, uh, and so it seemed like a a, a nice title. For the mm. book,
0: you're not heartless when it comes to music. Music really touches you.
1: Yeah, but I, I, I again, I, I, I tend to stay away from you know heartless or heartful or soul and all that. I mean, I think it just resonates with my algorithms. I mean, I think that I feel, you know, uh, very secure because of some very obvious reasons. And that was when I was very young. My mother was a concert pianist or, and wanted to be anyway, uh, but she had me instead which I guess I'll never live down and uh, I, I, from the very first movement of my existence as I can remember I was listening to Chopin, I was listening to Beethoven, all the composers we've been speaking about. It's, it's in my blood and those things were impressed upon uh, my sort of sem- semi-blank neurons in my brain to the point where uh, I instinctually uh, feel mother's milk toward them they, mm. are, they are what fed me intellectually when I was young. And even though I've always wanted to be an astrophysicist at heart, I, I, I love mathematics. I love to, to write. Um, and I love to do a lot of different things in my life. And I would rather in many ways have done those things other than be a composer, um, I'm a composer. Uh, I really had no choice. And yes, I listen to music uh, six to eight hours a day Uh, almost entirely classical music and modern music. Uh, And, uh, yeah, I love it. It, It's something that is – I go two or three days without listening to a piece, and I am in withdrawal. I really am. I'm in uh, terrible shape. And so whenever I get into a squirrely mood around the house, my wife orders me to go upstairs and listen to uh, a piece of music, the first one I can get my hands on to. And I'm really really, uh, uh, very – open uh, in terms of uh, my tastes. I like a lot of different music, and so I'll turn on Vivaldi, just as likely as I'd turn on Stravinsky, or any other composer for that matter. I often actually choose ones that I don't particularly like, because I want to know why I don't like them. So I'll listen to music over and over again that I haven't liked in hopes that I'll find things that'll make me or help me like them. I like to like things.
0: Well, that's some algorithm you've got going there.
1: Well, I hope so. I don't know it's It's getting a, a few gray hairs on it, but it's it's something I'm very pleased with. Uh, I like what I do. People often ask me, by the way, you know because I do so many different things uh, in a world where we tend to be more specialized and, and I could be considered a dilettante and, and by doing so many different things, uh, you know what what am I trying to prove? And, you know, my answer to them is, I'm just trying to be the best damn David Cope I can. And it it doesn't matter uh, what anybody thinks of me or, you know, how they evaluate one particular thing that I do over another thing. Uh, I'm just trying to be the best whatever I am that I can be. And uh, it's working so far.
0: (laughs) Well, from my algorithm to yours, thank you so much for this time. Thank you.
1: My pleasure. Indeed. Great questions.
0: David Cope is Dickerson Emeriti Professor at UC Santa Cruz, and we've been listening to selections from two of his CDs today, both from Centaur Records. The first was Classical Music Composed by Computer, Experiments in Musical Intelligence from 1997. The second, which we're listening to now, is Emily Howell from Darkness Light. This has been the 7th Avenue Project, trying to be the best damn 7th Avenue Project we can be. Our website is 7thAvenueProject.com. I'm Robert Polly. And I'll be back next week.